Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's Friday, April 14th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We already knew a lot about Clarence Thomas and his definition of ethics and conflicts of interest, especially when it came to his family. But ProPublica has put more meat on that bone, detailing the extravagant vacations Justice Thomas has taken in the company of Texas billionaire Harlan Crow. Good government types, of which Thomas is not, are upset with the value of the trips. They're upwards of half a million dollars, or would be had Thomas paid for them on his own. But come on, who's going to pay for a trip like that on a government salary, especially when you have a friend, a good friend, a boon companion saying, hey, Clarence, I'm island hopping. Join us. It's a private plane with an empty seat. What, are we going to jawbone about eminent domain? Why would I, a major property developer, care about that? This Harlan Crow, of whom I was just embodying, got into the character for a second there. He is quite an American character. I think Lionel Barrymore played him in the first half of the 20th century, and then Robert Prosky took over in the 80s. I thought I could rely on your honor, Hobbs. You're about to. You're a foolish, foolish man. You've forgotten something. Your past. Now, the thing you may have read about the guy is he likes collectibles. I mean, that's wrong to shame him for being some sort of fanboy. The Dallas Morning News in 2014 wrote an article, History Abounds Inside Harlan Crow's Home. The estate in Highland Park is rich with artifacts, documents, sculptures, and more. Here's how it starts. Dallas real estate investor Harlan Crow doesn't want to be misunderstood, although he and his wife, Kathy, have agreed to open their Highland Park home and grounds to ticket holders for the Park City's Historic and Preservation Society tour. He's reluctant to talk about what many would consider the most fascinating aspect of an endlessly engrossing piece of property. He'd rather focus on the library, not the sculpture garden. Woo, what's in the sculpture garden must be pretty bad if this was what he wanted to talk about in the library. The news goes on to report, quote, protected in cabinets, document signatures, read Ponce de Leon, Christopher Columbus, Amerigo Vespucci, George Washington, Robert E. Lee, and all the signers of the Declaration and Constitution. In other words, slaver, 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 and more than half slavers. Ah, Times change. We're not as sensitive as we are now. But even in 2014, he was pretty sensitive about what was in the sculpture garden, a lot of sculptures of dictators. But one fact jumped out at me about Harlan Crow. He was very involved with befriending and promoting Clarence Thomas, 
not for any reason other than the fact that he really wants to build museums and monuments to Clarence Thomas. According to ProPublica, Crow's Foundation gave $105,000 to Yale Law School, Thomas's alma mater, for the Justice Thomas Portrait Fund tax filing show. ProPublica also reports he donated large amounts to centers for the study of Clarence Thomas, and today it was disclosed he paid over $100,000 to purchase Clarence Thomas's mother's house while she was living there. And as owner, he made tens of thousands of dollars worth of improvements. Not as a way to indirectly but quite blatantly funnel money to a Supreme Court justice. No, just because he wanted to make a museum. Quote, my intention is one day to create a public museum at the Thomas home dedicated to telling the story of our nation's second black Supreme Court justice, Crow said in a statement. Quote, I approached the Thomas family about my desire to maintain this historic site so future generations could learn about the inspiring life of one of our greatest Americans. And look, I love visiting Supreme Court Justice tourist attractions. I mean, I took the family on vacation to Abe Fortas land just this last summer, and I cherish my childhood memories at Warren Burgerberry Farms to say nothing of Earl Warren Wood. But I'm not sure the Clarence Thomas sightseeing market is what Harlan Crow assumes it to be? I mean, far be it for me to tell a successful billionaire and collector of artifacts and court justices how to do his business. But I do wonder if there is, I don't know, some sort of non-revenue play behind the Clarence Thomas birthplace and two vacant lots museum. On the show today, the gerontocracy versus the infantilocracy. But first, we continue our conversation with Dr. Robert Waldinger, author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. We discuss the little actions we can take to make our lives happier, social media's effect on happiness, and the possibility of the U.S. matching the happiness of smaller countries. Dr. Robert Waldinger up next. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. It's robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a Defender. And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say... I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com slash Defender. Dr. Robert Waldinger, author of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, is a Harvard psychiatrist and director of the longest ongoing study about well-being, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And you know, it's always delightful to delight a happiness researcher. So I was delighted when delight set in upon my asking the doctor to tell me a bit about sublimation. <laughs> well, sublimation is a psychoanalytic term that 
refers to taking impulses that might be unacceptable and turning them into something that's socially acceptable. So the ultimate sublimation is you're a really aggressive guy and you become an NFL player who achieves a lot of success, right? You can channel that aggression rather than beating people up on the street you can tackle people on the football field. Okay, so that's sublimation. And what we find is that the people who can channel their impulses, which we all have, you know, wild, aggressive, sexual impulses, we got those. If you can channel them in ways that work socially, you have a lot more success and a lot more happiness in your life. And so how would this differ from recognizing a maladaptive trait in yourself and trying to fight against it? Well, fighting against it might mean channeling. It, okay. Right? Yeah, it's one form. So, but do other right, forms Right, it's one work? form. But there are other forms. Sure, exactly. So loving kindness. So let's say you're a nasty person and you're a really envious person and you pick people who you want to destroy because you're envious of them. You can do loving kindness meditation where you literally say, may you be peaceful, may you be happy. And you meditate on this time after time after time. And people can really change their psyches using this kind of training of the mind. This to me, both of them are forms of resiliency. And I'm really interested in that because I think the recent trends have been, and there's maybe a logical and a social explanation for this, to in the last 10, 20 years, value sensitivity over resiliency. And I would say we were a very insensitive society and probably continue to still be and we're insensitive in personal interactions. But I do think, and again, you tell me what your research shows, what your intuition shows. I think that there are costs from jettisoning resilience as a, a, a technique and a trait. And there are costs to being so sensitive that you uh, abandon resiliency as the first or second or third inclination when faced with uh, the choice between, you know, exhibiting one of those two characteristics. Absolutely. Would the goal be to protect us from stressors all the time? Absolutely not. That kids can't develop if they're never allowed to be stressed, if they're never allowed to face challenges, right? So this whole issue of, you know, often it's happening now in universities where people say, we need to be made safe. We don't want to be triggered. And, and many university people are saying, look, universities are here to trigger, to challenge, to do all that, right? It's not either or. It's not sensitivity or resiliency. What really the research shows is that what we want is to be able to meet challenges that we have the resources to meet. So if we are met with challenges that we have the resources to take care of, we grow, right? We get stronger. If we meet with challenges that are absolutely overwhelming, we are traumatized. And so, of course, you never get it quite right. But what we want when we're raising children, when we're living our own lives, is to meet challenges that we can face with the resources that are needed or to get those resources from somewhere. Do you think we do ourselves a favor as a society by defining trauma uh, to the extent we have where things that were once seen as challenging or difficult are now seen as traumatizing? There's something to argue for that, which are that a lot of these things really are traumas and people, and, and we've been insensitive and ignorant about them. On the other side, 
uh, what you just said. If we can meet the challenge, we probably should. And recognizing that's an important part of growing. Trauma is interesting because trauma is really in the eye of the beholder. If I say I'm traumatized by something, nobody else can tell me I'm not, right? And I can exhibit symptoms that go with trauma. But basically, if I feel traumatized, I feel traumatized. Now, you can say I shouldn't be that sensitive, but that's just the way I'm built, right? Now, on the other hand, we can set ourselves up to say, I don't want, I don't want any challenge. That is a recipe for disaster in human development. And so I think what we need to do is push back some on these people who say, don't hurt me, don't hurt me, don't challenge me at all. That there is a sweet spot. There is a middle ground that needs to be achieved for everybody. As you've been following your cohort and doing the studies that you've been doing, different ideas have flitted in and out of popularity. Are there any recent trends or even trends over the last 20 years in happiness, uh, in, in gurus or experts telling you this is the path to happiness, trends that now we can look at via the data and say, yeah, that was slightly off or very much off? Well, there's a lot in the self-help industry that says if you do these six things, yeah, I'm making it up, but if you do these things, you'll be happy, right? And, and I think that the biggest myth that we sell each other is that you can be happy all the time. There is no human on the planet who's happy all the time. And that's worth naming because we can sell each other these myths that if you buy this car or if you serve this brand of pasta, your life will be blissful. Or if you get this kind of enlightenment, right? If you meditate till you get enlightened, you'll be happy all the time. That is not the truth of human existence. And so I name that because... We can accidentally give each other the false impression that if we're not happy all the time, we're doing something wrong. And that's not true. All right. Here's a short but impossible question. Are more connected people happier or are happier people more connected? <laughs> it is bi-directional, sir. That means that if you are happier, you have the energy and you give off the energy that that makes people want to connect and makes you want to connect with them more. Also, if you're more connected, you get energy from people, you get a, a sense of well-being and belonging from people. So it really works in both directions. Similarly with health, healthier people are able to connect more with others. That keeps them healthier. People who are connected more with others get health benefits. So it's it's a two-way street in in all of these things. That's the way human development works. Can we do more than just tweak our happiness without massive changes in life circumstance, health, income, etc.? Yes. There's a, a psychologist, Sonia Lubomirsky, who estimates how much of our happiness is under our control. And she says about half of it's genetic, about 10% is our current life circumstance, and about 40% is under our control. And 40% is a lot. That means we can move the needle by building certain practices into our lives, like social fitness, you know, that we talk about in this book that we just published, you know, that where you, you actively nurture and take care of relationships by little actions day after day.
I'm sure you followed the discussion about how social media makes us, and especially teens, and especially uh, teenage girls, unhappy. Do, it's true. I've read your writing about that. You point to it. Is it a sea change from other forms of media? The media that in 1939, the guys in your study would have uh, encountered? Or is it sort of on a continuum, an always ever thus continuum, just maybe the most pernicious form thereof? It's not a sea change, right? What we we always used to curate our lives for each other. We all would always put on our game face when we walked out of the house, right? But um, what's different now is that the software is programmed to grab our attention and hold it, and that means that many people stay on their screens. 8, 12, 16 hours a day. They are bathed in this sea of curated lives that are fake, that are they're at least partially fake, right? That are not the whole story. And that's where I think the perniciousness is. We always sold snake oil to each other, but now the problem is it's being sold, you know, 24-7 and holding our attention in a way that other media couldn't do. Bhutan measures national happiness. Are you very familiar with how they define it? Are they doing a good job? Could the United States do something like that? Should they? Yeah. Well, the Center for Bhutan Studies does a survey every five years. And they ask about this. They ask how people are happy, what makes them happy. Bhutan actually, if you want to pass a piece of legislation in Bhutan, you have to detail how it's going to affect collective well-being. Right? So collective well-being is a huge part of what gets considered constantly. I think that would be an enormous shift for us. I mean, somebody like Marianne Williamson, whose candidacy I loved, even though people, many people smiled, even laughed, because she was holding out there the possibility that we could orient ourselves toward human connection and kindness more if we really wanted to do that. We could orient our public policy. That's what Bhutan has done. Yeah, it is possible. Uh Personally, I wouldn't want to trust her with troop movements, let's say, but that no. idea, <laughs> yeah. the, the thing that she lit upon, there probably is a way for a successful candidate who is very uh, skilled at other parts of politics and also experienced can incorporate some of that. In fact, it sometimes happens and sometimes people get made fun of when they do that. But I do think that very successful candidates are doing a version of that. Can, Chris Christie tries to do it when he talks about opioids. Even Tim Ryan, who ran for president, he talked a lot about health in a way that Marianne Williamson would recognize. Tim Ryan didn't get a lot of attention as a presidential candidate. But I think, but I do think there's a yearning for that, maybe less in a, you know, crystal new age type of sheen, but there is a yearning. There's a huge yearning. I mean, you know, my, my TED talk, I gave my TED talk in an elementary school auditorium in Brookline, Massachusetts. I thought I'd get a few thousand views. It went completely viral because I think of this yearning. What I was talking about is the importance of human connection. And I think there are just so many people out there who are saying, yes, and we need warmer connections with each other. And what the world is showing us is the opposite and everything trending in the wrong direction. And so I think that people like Tim Ryan, Marianne Williamson, other Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, who's making... Yeah emotional well-being a pillar as and no he surgeon runs general his has ever... meetings uh, yeah. according to these rules yeah. yeah i mean that these are the people we need to look to we need to listen to as opposed to the people who make us afraid and make us angry at each other 
That is simply allowing ourselves to be manipulated. So speaking of U.S. politics uh, and Bhutan, Bhutan's a country of less than 800,000 people. And other very happy countries, New Zealand has a couple million people. Number one in happiness is always Finland, five and a half million people. Might it just be impossible for a huge, sprawling, heterogeneous society such as ourselves to achieve the happiness and cohesion uh, of these smaller homogeneous places? It may be because our minds are trained to notice differences and to notice danger out there and to see others as potentially dangerous. I think we evolved that way because I think we probably survived better, you know, on the savanna or wherever the hell it was by doing that, by noticing. And so the problem is how do you get around this quality of the human mind and say, celebrate differences, don't see them as scary. And I think that the, you're right. You're pointing to these cultures that are much more homogeneous, where the scariness of differences just isn't in your face all day, every day. I've also read specifically about Finland. They're excellent at managing expectations or having what they would call realistic expectations. Maybe an American would call, um, you know, less grand expectations. Yes, Yes. Is that part of it? The expectations game? Yes. Realizing, first of all, we can't have it all. There is this fantasy that we can have it all. And that's why, you know, our culture glorifies the self-made man, you know, the millionaire, the billionaire. We glorify these things that are that are perpetuating a myth of having everything. Wealth, fame, um, you know, beauty, all that stuff. We can't have that. So what happens if we set our expectations to find the joy in what's here right now? in the birds sitting on a tree outside my window. I mean, it sounds corny, but that's literally what meditation does for me. Uh, And it is possible to set expectations in a very different way. And then you find all kinds of joy in the small things that are there every day. So I do want to ask you about religion because reading from your work and other work, there's a lot it tied up with religion that does correlate to happiness, um, just the connection and the community and spirituality in general. But of course, there's a lot about religion that yields tragedy and war, etc. What are the major elements, the constant elements in religions that are antithetical to happiness? The antithetical parts are about what we call in Zen delusive certainty meaning being absolutely sure you know that this is black and this is white, right? That there's a, in Zen, we talk about cultivating something called beginner's mind. Uh, Shunryu Suzuki was a Zen teacher who, who said something that I love. He said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And the problem with some religion, not all, is that some religion says we are the absolute experts in what's what, in what's true and what's evil and what's good, and anything that deviates from that is heresy, that that causes enormous suffering. It's been the cause of tremendous war and strife. Um, And so I think that if we keep open the idea of many possible ways to be in the world and many truths, we are dwelling in that place that we call beginner's mind. 
So the last thing, or the last big thing I want to ask about is just the idea of happiness has gotten so much more attention and currency. There's the 10% Happier podcast, which I know you're on, which is ranked in the top 10. There's Lori Santos, who runs the most popular course at Yale, and her podcast is called The Happiness Lab, and your book about happiness. But actually, I don't have to tell you this, what you're actually studying is well-being. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, that's what Santos's course is too. It's well-being. And I would attribute our interest in happiness because just mark the market dictates giving people what they want and maybe we're unhappy. So you put happiness out there. But what are the differences in, there are differences in understanding happiness and understanding well-being. I would say well-being is more contentedness and happiness seems to be more gleefulness. But I'm going to ask you to analyze why well-being doesn't sell like happiness sells and if that's making us less happy. (laughs) <laughs> well, when we think of happiness, we think of what the, the psychologists call hedonic well-being. It comes from hedonism, right? It's like, am I having fun right now? And actually, that's an accident. So if I'm having a good conversation with you right now, which I am, I didn't know this was going to be fun and interesting. An hour from now, something really crummy might happen and I won't be happy. So happiness is a moment-to-moment occurrence. It's an accident. But we can build the conditions into our lives that make us more accident-prone, right? We can build those conditions of well-being, like taking care of our health, taking care of our relationships, uh, not abusing substances, not gambling away our money, all that, right? We can do that. That makes it more likely that we will experience happiness in any given moment. And so building well-being, it's not sexy. It's a long-term practice. It's not shiny. Right? You can't grab it like you can grab a new car or a diamond ring. And so I think that's why it doesn't sell. Robert Waldinger is the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. That is the study referred to in the title of his book, along with Mark Schultz, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon, alive. That's why Seed developed a patented two-in-one capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. And now the spiel. One issue I've changed my stance on over the really the last few months is the danger of the gerontocracy. Just to affix the label is to divulge where you come down. If one valued sagacity and experience, we wouldn't call it the gerontocracy. We'd call it, I don't know, the veterantocracy or the, oh, or the whiztocracy. It's a more neutral label. The whiztocracy could stand for wizened or could stand for wisdom. 
the experiocracy from experienced, same root in Latin as expert, an experiment. Yeah, we all know about the embodiments, the crumbling, the decrepit, failing, crumbling embodiments of the gerontocracy in government now. The oldest senator, Dianne Feinstein, has been absent from the Senate for over a month now. We're told it's a case of shingles. And Joe Biden, not so fluent anymore. Mitch McConnell fell down. And Chuck Grassley goes to bed at 8.15 each night after a mug of Ovaltine and watching a rerun of The Muppet Show. Chuck Grassley is the second oldest member of the Senate, also like Feinstein at 89. But let me play a clip from the year 1986. Back then, Grassley was a spry man of 53. The hearing was for Antonin Scalia's confirmation to the Supreme Court. In recent years, and because Judge Scalia uh, seems to have some strong views on the doctrine of separation of powers. Now, that was day two of the hearings. Grassley had sat through a full day, in fact, many days' worth of news coverage, talking about Antonin Scalia's name, saying the name. He also was on the panel that confirmed his appointment to the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, where Antonin Scalia was up for a vote, and Grassley voted on him. So is the problem that Chuck Grassley is currently 89, or is the problem that he's always been Chuck Grassley? Look, inside every doddering old person, you'll probably find a former doddering young person. I fear, however, that Feinstein is simply taking up space and not even taking votes in the Senate, but for every confirmation of the idea that there is a gerontocracy and it's something to worry about, there's some spry old codger who's still got it. Nancy Pelosi might have lost a couple miles off her fastball, but man, she still knows how to work the corners. And for every old person who maybe is slipping, there's another old person you wish would slip. Hello, former President Donald Trump. And there's a young person who's experienced physical frailties of their own, like Senator Fetterman. Or there's an old person who you don't like and is a bit creaky, say Mitch McConnell, but what you don't like about him has really nothing to do with the creakiness. And then there's an old person with vigor who you wish had a lot less vigor, and a young person with vigor who you also wish didn't have quite so much vigor, Matt Gates. I'm saying, if you graph the correlation between old and ineffectiveness, but also included old and effective, young and ineffective, young and overly effective, you'd find an extremely weak correlation, a very low P, and probably a low T among the men. The gerontocracy isn't a myth, but I think it might mostly be a boogeyman. I worry just as much about the infantocracy. Is Greta Thunberg especially insightful, or does she just have the Old Testament preacher and the young person garb thing going on? All these idiot TikTokers, I'd say none of them have really shown us the way. The Sunrise Movement has an entirely backward notion of how to affect change, but they do know how to get attention. And finally, the big one that's dominating my mind space, if not the airspace, is Airman Teixeira. Airman Teixeira, who leaked or stole the documents and gave them to his Discord buddies. What a callow fool. And have you seen his picture? 21 years old? He looks like he's really upset that his mom forgot it was her turn to bring orange slices to the soccer game. If the U.S. and Ukraine escape serious battlefield setbacks, it'll be a close shave thanks to a guy who can't yet. He'd have leaked more documents, but his dirt bike ran over a nail. 
According to the even younger acolytes in his Discord group, he disapproved of the government's intervention in Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge happened literally 30 years before this guy was born. What the hell does he know about Ruby Ridge? He doesn't even know who Peter Jennings was. It would be like me having especially strong attitudes about FDR's policy towards the phalangist movement in Franco Spain. Oh, and then letting that guide my leaking of classified documents on my, what, MindSpring message? message board via AOL dial-up. It doesn't. The technologies don't even match. I can't even make an analogy. This is all so stupid. It's all so stupid what Airman Teixeira has done. Should be called Airboy Teixeira. The Washington Post described this Peter Pan of the Discord server and the toodles and nibs lost boys we led, quote, the Washington Post was able to trace their wide dispersal, meaning the stolen documents, back to a small private group made up largely of teenagers and led by a man initially identified as OG. Authorities have said they are focused on a 21-year-old man named Jack Teixeira. No, not a man. Not a man at all. He was chasing clout among the clearasold. And it's not just him. Whenever leaders bend over backwards complimenting the young or the next generation who has it right or are leading the way or have some sort of special insight or effectiveness, you know, I don't want to curdle into Bill Maher over here, but I have to say, it's very often not true. I mean, I'll give credit when it is true. AOC is, for a representative of her viewpoint, extremely skilled and savvy and young, relatively young. But Madison Cawthorn, he's not that. Monica De La Cruz is not that. Youth doesn't make you smarter or better. It makes you younger. It makes you less experienced. It gives you more energy, energy that can be channeled into pursuing good policy outcomes or bad, energy that can be spent building a coalition or a social media following, and energy that can be spent guarding secrets or spewing them, sometimes spewing them without control. Energy has no moral valence, it can get you excited, and it could also get you in trouble. And a lot of times, when you're older, maybe not 89, but a little bit older, you understand how much energy you have, but you also very much understand how to best expend it. And that's it for today's show. The unbelievably youthful Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist, and the solidly middle-aged Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is vice president of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. She operates in a space outside of time and would never leak documents to hurt the Ukrainians. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com